Amen. Good morning, church. You didn't get the memo, uh, grades five and down are dismissed next door for Children's Church. You may exit the premises in an orderly fashion. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, we're starting a new series today. Excited to dive in. Um, I love showing up to the movie theater early, part of my OCD tendencies uh, I inherited from my father. Um, and I like getting there before the, even the previews. Uh, they used to have, especially, they had all the fun little games on the screen. Quizzes, um, uh, little uh, trivia things, and, and I, my favorite one was they would show a picture of a celebrity, and it's all blurry, all pixelated, and slowly the image becomes clearer, and you got to try. The goal is to guess who that image uh, is as quickly as you can. You've seen that one, so we're actually going to do that this morning. I want to see if you can figure this out. First one, as soon as you think you know who it is, shout it out, and if you're wrong, we'll make fun of you uh, in the name of Jesus. All right, here we go. Ready? Let's see what you can. Hey, that was well. Now let's just make sure they're right. See if we'll mock them. And the suspense. This is wow. Good job, guys. Good job. You need to read more books. I I think that uh, some of you now. How many of you like you see the name, you see the face, and you still don't know who that is, right? That's good. You you love Jesus more than the rest of us. So that's good. I um the the image. The obviously the the clearer the image, the easier it is to guess. Right. That's the whole idea. Now I, I think the Bible in a lot of ways um, is sort of like this blurry image. That at the start at the beginning of it, it's kind of harder to understand and see where it's going to go. But as we work through the story, the image becomes clearer. And and because of that, we're going to be calling this new series that we're launching the Unfolding Promise. And look at us. Our graphics have motions. Next level. Right? This is, this is Ryan's uh, doing. This is, I'm just, you know, we are, we are really ratcheting it up. I bet the Bible chapel doesn't have motion on there. No, I'm just kidding. Let's, we're on, Ross prayed last week. We're all on the same team. This is great. This is, this is so, moving along. Uh, it's called the unfolding promise. And, and the unfolding nature of it is this idea that as the blurry image becomes clearer uh, or the flower blossoms unfolds, um, we see uh, clearer what God is doing. The Bible gives us this story in what we call a progressive nature, meaning that it gradually uh, cl clarifies itself as we move forward. Page one doesn't give us all the answers. Uh, we, don't, we don't know what we know by the end of the story, and, and we're going to work forward in an unfolding manner. And then the, what's unfolding is a promise, or really a series of promises. How many of us, as we open our Bibles, we kind of feel like we're looking at that blurry image? Or maybe we don't understand exactly, we're in some prophet, and we're going, I have no idea what they're saying, or why, or who they're talking to. A lot of the Bible can be hard to understand. It can be unclear and pixelated as we're trying to, to read it. For me, I didn't understand a lot of how the Bible fit together and, and told one story until I got to Bible school. I didn't even necessarily know that the Bible was trying to fit together and tell one story. And the image over time has become clearer and, and clearer. Um, and how does that image come into focus? Well, it's, it's through a series of promises or, or what we see in the Bible, the word is covenants. Now, from page one of the Bible, God makes these covenants. He makes these relational promises um, with, a, with a variety of humans uh, moving in a direction, pushing the story forward of how God rescues mankind back into relationship with himself. And what an encouragement, by the way, that God has one unfailing plan. God doesn't have 
plan B. He, he, these aren't a, this isn't, well, the first promise didn't work, and then the second one failed, so I'm going to keep trying. Our God is a faithful God who always keeps his promises, amen? That our God will always finish what he started. He will always come through on what he said he'll do. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I made the extremely uh, wise, insightful decision to jump off a 30-foot bluff uh, on, down to the bottom of the, uh, the inlet uh, floor. And uh, when I landed, we actually have pictures of this, which I don't know who was taking pictures and not helping me, but when I landed uh, at the bottom, I, I thought I was paralyzed, um, that I couldn't move, and we, we went to the, the doctor, looked at the x-ray, and I, my, my spinal cord was literally making an S-shape. I was out of alignment. And if my spinal cord did not get realigned, the rest of my body wouldn't be able to function properly, right? Um, what, what we see is in the Bible, Thomas Schreiner says it this way, if one understands how the covenants function in the Bible, one will have a good grasp of how the Bible fits together. So we think of these covenants as the backbone of Scripture. If we're going to flesh out the full meaning of what God wants us to know about himself and our story, we have to understand, we have to align these covenants. So the picture becomes clear, right? We got one more fuzzy image. Anybody? Man, so quick, so quick. You heathens. I don't know. They just don't read the Bible as much as we do. They're watching movies. I, I don't know. I, I, I thought Jesus is a Jesus. I don't know. Uh, um, so we, <laughs> I want to mention that at the outset, uh, the main book we're going to be pulling from, other than the Bible, of course, we're preaching from the Bible, but there's a book called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. Uh, that, uh, Pastor Ross and I have been reading this book. Uh, it really helps kind of clarify a, lo a lot of these concepts. So if you want to, we, we don't want to plagiarize here. Uh, if you want to grab this book and read along, we're going to be in this uh, for a couple of months. I would encourage you. It's by Peter J. Gentry and Stephen J. Wellam. Apparently, one of the prerequisites to write the book was to have a J in the middle of your name. Uh, and so these guys have written this book, would recommend it highly. Uh, it's a helpful resource, and we just want to cite our, our sources here. So um, if we're going to understand this backbone of, of covenants, we need to ask the question, uh, what, is the, what is a covenant, right? The Hebrew word is barith, barith. Uh, and, and I think today, when, when we, one of our, our hurdles from understanding this idea, when we hear a word like covenant, uh, we might hear something more the long, along the lines of a contract. So when LeBron James signs a contract with the Los Angeles Lakers, there's a mutual agreement that's going on, but it's, it's performance-based. It's based on, on performance, and there's a desired benefit. That you play basketball well, we will pay you, and what we get is all the money that comes from the ticket sales and jersey sales. There's a mutual benefit uh, based on this, on this benefit on his performance. Uh, when, when you go to buy a house, the contract is oriented around a thing, right? I'm going to give you money, and, and, then, and I promise to give the bank this amount of money every month, and then they will give me this thing that I want, the house, well, a covenant is, is different than, than a contract. In a, in a covenant, it's not based on performance, it's based on loyalty. That there are two parties that, that have entered into this relationship to be loyal to one another. It's not based on uh, an outward external benefit, it's based on the relationship between the two, and it's not oriented around a thing or an object, it's, it's oriented around the person, the, the people involved. So when Jill and I entered into a marriage a covenant, it was shocking, I didn't know. Um, that we, we didn't sign just a contract, right? That Jill said, you know what? If you keep your performance up, uh, at the end of seven years, your contract will renew, right? 
otherwise, you're a free agent. Right? That's a, that would be that we did not we did not do that. We did not we did not do that. It's it's a sacred. It's a God ordained covenant. Uh, and it's not based on performance. It's not based on benefits. I'll do the chores if you continue to give me presents. It's not, it, it's, it's based on a desire, a God-given desire for relationship, for companionship. And it centers around not an external thing, but around people. It's loyalty, heart, faithfulness. And, and the way that the Bible Project summarizes the, this, this definition is that a covenant is a chosen, remember voluntarily entering in, a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to, to reach a common goal. So these two parties that have said, we're going to be loyal to each other, work together through these solemn promises we've made to each other to achieve an end. We're working toward something together. And there's all kinds of covenants in the Bible. There's the marriage covenants. There are, there are international covenants, like treaties between nations. There are personal friendship covenants. Remember the most famous one, Jonathan and David enter into this kind of a relationship um, together. But there are these six kind of central vertebrae that make up the backbone of, of the story of the Bible. And, and our, our plan, these, each of these covenants is between God and humans. So the way we're going to work this series is we're going to take about two weeks per covenant. And we're going to see this picture unfold and become clearer. The first one that we'll start this week is the relationship with Adam and Eve, God and Adam and Eve, then Noah, uh, Abraham, uh, Israel, David, and then ultimately the new covenant that will point forward as they all do uh, to their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So we want to look today at first at the covenant with Adam and Eve. We're going to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to... All right. You know Tom Hanks, but not that song. That's great. Uh, so this covenant at creation is with Adam and Eve. And here's what we would say, that God created human beings uh, for three express purposes that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And I actually think this is going to unfold in each of the covenants that are going to come. Number one, he created humans for a relationship with him, a relationship with him. Number two, rulership under him, rulership under him, and then finally restful worship of God, of him, or in, in him. And so we're going to look at each three of these uh, this, this morning. Uh, we're going to find it mostly in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, and then a little bit at the beginning of chapter 2. If you want to follow along in your own Bibles, that's where we're going to be camping out. So the first thing we see is a relationship with God. We see this in the word likeness. Um, we, we know at the beginning of the Bible, God's story, that, that God creates uh, all things on earth, and then he orders those things as he's creating them. So he separates day and night. He separates the land and, and sea, organizes them. He creates plants and animals um, that will reproduce their own kind. There's an ordered, created world that God uh, brings into existence. And on day six, we see this crown jewel of creation. Genesis 1.26 says it this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. These two key words are image and likeness. Image and likeness. Now these two terms overlap each other, but they do have different nuances, and so we want to look at both of them. The first one is likeness. Likeness. Uh, the Hebrew word is demuth. Demuth. So you can remember it this way. Uh, demuth is luth. Uh, used to make good donuts, right? That's, um, that's just, okay. Um, so this is used, this word likeness is used to signify sonship, 
or daughtership, sonship. And we see this in the ancient world. This was the word they used, I mean, not just the Hebrew people, but in, in ancient Egypt, uh, the king or the pharaoh was said to be made in the likeness of God. And the reason they would say that is because they saw him as a son of the God, the deity that they worshipped in Egypt. They actually worshipped many deities. And this wasn't referring to a physical image, because there were, there were male and female gods and goddesses, but there were only male male pharaohs. This wasn't physical resemblance or likeness. This was talking about their character, their personality, who they, they were. So the king was to act like the god that he represented, to be like that, that god. And, and so that likeness was a reference to relationship. So the, the more like you are someone, the more that you can have a relationship with them. And what we see here in creation, the only created being that was made in the likeness of God was, was, was humankind. God did not make anybody else in his likeness. So as much as we try to pretend that dogs are people, we can put sweaters on them, we can do all the crazy weird things that you people do, they, God does not have the same kind of relationship with a dog that he does with other humans. And so what we see is God creating humans in his likeness for a relationship with us as sons and daughters. And we see this language uh, perpetuated as, as man begets man uh, that we see in Genesis 5. God created man in the likeness of God. And then what happens next? Adam fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So the, the father, the son resembles the, the father. So my father and I, uh, we do resemble each other physically. That's where I get my, my Greek god-like body straight from him. Thank you, father, chiseling me that way. Also, my sinus problems come straight from my dad. But also our personalities, right? our character traits, our, 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 um, desire, our stubbornness and, and our a desire to be very, very punctual. Uh, I get that straight from my, my OCD father. So... We, we see that in the same way that God creates us to live like he lives, to, to manifest, make flesh visible, his character, his love, his patience, his gentleness, his faithfulness. Who our God is, is meant to be embodied, very literally, in his sons and daughters, created in his likeness. But here's, there are similarities to the ancient world, but, but God is telling a different story than the rest of the world was at that time and is today. You see, the Pharaoh is the only one that was seen to be made in the likeness of God, that the other people around him were not. But that's not what Genesis tells us, is it? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That our maleness and femaleness, both men and women, are created in the likeness and image of God. Every person on earth, in fact. That we all have, whether you're black or you're white, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're male or you're female, whether you put the toilet paper on backward or forward, although the backward people are a little less like God, right? I, I, I think he's a forward guy. He's a wise, ordered universe, you crazies. We are all, each of us, listen, every single human being that's ever been created has the same value, has the same dignity, has been created in the image of our God. Amen? Amen. In our creator's world, and this was very countercultural to the time, they did not see women as the same value as they saw men. 
They did not see the servants, the poor, the crippled in the same value and worth that they saw the king and those that were powerful. God says there's a different story to be told. I want to tell you the truth. In the the intro to Gentry and Williams' book, they say at its most basic, covenant presents God's desire to enter into relationship with men and women created in his image. What God desires most from us is a relationship. And we're going to see this played out in the covenants. When, When he makes a covenant with Israel, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is his heart all along for the creation to have a relationship with the creator. And we, this is a beautiful truth and a necessary truth, especially on our rainy days, to remember that, that God's desire is to know us and to be known by us in relationship, an intimate fellowship. Relationship with God is seen in the word likeness. And then we see rulership under God in the word image, in the word image. So in the 13th century, uh, BC, the Pharaoh Ramses, uh, the sequel, he was uh, spreading Egypt's empire up along the Mediterranean coast. And what he would do is, at these key places that they would kind of take over, he would chisel out an image of himself in the stone. Kind of this Mount Rush, ancient Mount Rushmore thing. And we actually have, uh, we've unearthed some of the images of, of this Pharaoh uh, from that time, even today. Now, why was he doing that? This was a sign. This is a sign that he was now the ruler of that area. This was Pharaoh Ramses saying, this land's not your land. This land is my land, right? All up the Mediterranean. He is showing his conquest and his power is now extended to that area. And that statue, that, that stone represents his rule. And similarly, the Pharaoh himself was seen as a statue. He was seen as a living statue, that he represented their God as a living, visible manifestation that this God is ruling in this place, a living, a living statue, making the unseen God a visible reality. This is the language that Genesis 1.26 uses. It says, then God says, let us make man in our image, in our image. And here he's using that same word that we are visible representations here on earth that our God reigns, that he is supreme over all things. And we see this as he unpacks what it looks like to bear his image on this, on this earth. He says, let's make man in our image and let them have dominion. It's a ruling word over the fish in the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'm going to rule over snakes by killing them all. Uh, Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the sea, and over the birds and everything that moves. So what what is he saying here? That that I, God is a God who rules and he, he made us in his image to represent his rule here on earth. That we're called to fill the earth with more image bearers in his likeness and to rule and reign over the rest of creation. And we see this, uh, this, so you compare these two ideas. Likeness talks about us and God. This is a vertical relationship. That, that we are his sons and his daughters made in his likeness, a relationship with God. This is who we are. This is who we are. And then the image shows the, the, vertical, the horizontal relationship between us and the rest of the world. That we are, we are sons of God, but we are servant kings and queens of this world. That, that we have been called to rule under that God that we have relationship with. So who we are are royal children of our God. And what we do is we represent his rule in the way that we take care of and are responsible for the rest of creation. 
And this is an important note. We are not God. We are not gods. That's not what it says. It says we are images of that God. He is the supreme ruler, right? We are servant kings. We do his bidding. The Greek word here is, is icon, where we get our word icon. So, so an icon represents something else, right? Like even in the computer world, we know that the image, the icon on our phone is not the app. It represents the app. When you click on the icon, what comes up? The app itself. It represents its likeness and image shows you, points you toward the actual image. That's what a statue does, right? And he says, you and I are living statues to bear the resemblance of who our God is and our character and our traits and to point everybody toward the one who rules and reigns. Like that Pharaoh's statue, we're living evidence that the Lord is God of all creation. Now, this is not, we are not despots. That word means like an absolute power. Uh, that, remember the, at the end of Aladdin when, when the, the Jafar wants the, the supreme power in little bitty living space, right? That we could, it's not this concept of we are God and we are in control. Bow to me, you squirrels, right? And we're, not, we're not having dominion over the rest of the world in this heavy, that's not what we're called to here. He, we are stewards. The psalm says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This does not belong to us. We're not to exercise this kind of, this kind of uh, despotic power over it. We are to steward, to manage, to take care of the world that belongs to God. That, that is his. And so to summarize things, on page one of the Bible, what we really see is a kingdom. It's a kingdom. That, that God, the king, um, that he wants to make his rule and his nature and his will is invisible, right? God is invisible as spirit. He wants to make it visible here on earth. His kingdom in heaven will be seen in his kingdom here on earth. And so we are called to embody, literally embody, his character and his traits and to rule, to rule as his representatives here on earth as we take care of this world and do his work. What an amazing role, right? Like what an amazing thing that human beings uniquely were called into. So going forward in our story, as the image becomes clearer, we're going to see these three relationships uh, and, and the development of them. Our relationship with God, that he is supreme and sovereign. So we're to trust him and obey him and worship him and intimately relate to him as we love and worship him. And then we're to also have a right relationship with others. The other image bearers on this horizontal plane, we are to value and dignify them as co-image bearers of God. And then finally, we see a right relationship with the earth, that we are called to be good stewards, to properly take care of and, and subdue the earth that, he, that belongs to him. You and I are created in the likeness of our father as his sons and daughters. You and I are created as royal children of the king. But that's not actually the central purpose that we see here in Genesis. For that, we turn to the next chapter. I believe the goal of this covenant that he makes with Adam and Eve is seen in chapter 2. It's restful worship. Restful worship. It kind of seems like an anticlimax, right? Like there's, we always say there's the seven days, uh, the first week. Like there's six days of creation. And then what happens on day 7, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2? Then the, 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 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in Creation. So it says after six days and everything God had done, he'd done, he had done, what does he do? He stops doing. He rests. That seems like a weird place to land. And we know like God's immaterial. We know that God doesn't get exhausted. He doesn't run out of energy. 
So this is not just God frazzled after a busy week of making suns and skunks and skies. Like, this is not God needing a nap. So what is going on here? Well, in the stories of that day, when a deity had, had finished establishing the world or cosmos that they had created, they, it, would, it would be said that they would rest, meaning they would enter into their temple, and in their temple, they would sit on their throne. It would symbolize not that the deity was tired, but they were at the helm. They were in control. They were maintaining the order and the security and the stability of the world that they had just created. And that's what we see going on on day seven. Day seven, the number seven all throughout the Bible signifies uh, completion or perfection. And what we see here is God is saying, my world is complete and I am sitting in the temple on the throne in complete control. That's what he's saying in day seven. Now, it's interesting. We are the crown jewel of the creation in day six, but it comes to completion on day seven. This is where it was all heading, was toward this rest. In fact, it, you notice in the first six days, it says there was evening, there was morning, the first day, evening, morning, second day. But if you look in your Bible, there is no time marker on day seven. It doesn't say there was evening and morning the, the seventh day. Why? Because this is where those first six days were all heading. This was the purpose this was the fruition of what those six days were designed to point us to. Our purpose is rest. The reason that God created creation is so that we could joyfully rest in who are our role here on earth and in our God who sits on the throne in his temple. And spoiler alert, if you flip to the end of the Bible in Revelation, this is where you're going to see it's all going. Our eternal state is resting and rejoicing in our God who's going to operate from his place of control for all of eternity. But here's what's, it's what's interesting here. So the word, the word for rest that the Bible uses here is, is Shabbat, or what we say the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. But Sabbath was not just here's a day where you can nap all day. There was a heart behind what the Sabbath day was set apart for. And what's so interesting here is, did you notice if you're reading, it's word kind of weird, right? Like what it says is there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, isn't that backward from how we would say it? Like, how does our day begin? Wake up, right? Though my day begins when coffee's going down my gullet. Praise Jesus, right? And then what do we do? We work. We have activity. We perform. And then at the end of the day, how does our day end? When there's, when there's no more coffee, right? We, we, our day ends when we go to sleep, when we, when we rest. We would say it was morning, it was evening, the first day. That's not how the Hebrew, that's not how God saw day. And what's so beautiful about this concept, God's concept of day began in the evening. What he's saying is, no, 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 no. The way you start, you ready to start your day? Go to sleep. That's how the day began. And then after you've slept, after you've rested, now you get up and you work and you perform. What a beautiful concept that he's saying. Our foundation is not what we do. It's not our performance. It's who we are. It's the image bearer that we are. He says, we operate from a place of rest, knowing who we are in God. I'm getting so excited, I'm spitting. Out of the place of rest, we perform and we act. We have to operate from, from the place of Sabbath. And what is rest? It's not just like a forever nap, as much like heaven as that does sound, right? I believe the purpose of our relationship with God and our rulership under God is summarized in this word worship. 
in this word of worship. In fact, that's what we're really seeing going on in the garden. If you track the rest of the Bible's pattern, that's what we're going to do as this image becomes clearer. We're going to clearly see that Eden is designed as God's temple and that Adam is seen, Adam and Eve are seen as God's first priests. They're worshiping God in the, in the holy place. In fact, you look at the temple details, there's all this Eden imagery, all these plants and the wildlife and stuff that's put on the temple. You're going to clearly see that as, as you look forward. So, so notice the, the words that are being used here. First of all, he talks about a garden. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So where does he place God, man? In the garden. Now, as Alaskans, we need to do some unpacking when we hear the word garden. Because, like, this is an Alaskan garden, right? <laughs> we, we don't, we have, a, we have struggling tomatoes and a few rhubarbs, right? Like, that's kind of our idea. So what that, the mindset in the ancient east, when they thought garden, they were thinking a garden was reserved for kings, in fact, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. Now, what they saw here was this, this word itself, garden, it's translated garden. The word gan in, in Hebrew, it means to enclose, to fence off or protect. So it's not saying there's a row of carrots and lettuce. It's talking about a place that's walled off or protected for the royalty. So when they hear garden, when he's placed in a garden, Adam, what they're hearing, the audience, the Hebrew audience is hearing a royal, sacred, protected space. And it belongs to the king. And, and why is it sacred? Why is it royal? Well, because God's very presence rested there. We see in chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here we see the beginning of creation as intended, Adam and Eve walking with, can you even imagine what that would be like in the presence of God in this holy place? The Garden of Eden is where the four rivers flowed from, which probably means it was on a mountain if they're all flowing. This is, and what, what's in the center of the garden? The tree of life. What it's saying is this is the place of life where it flows to the rest of the world. Why? Because this is God, the author of life, where he dwells. In, in the temple, we see the menorah, which was, which was candles, and it's, it's fa fashioned after this tree of life. In the center of the garden is the light and life of God himself. And just like the temple and the tabernacle, the whole idea in the temple is the meeting place of God and man. This is where invisible heaven and visible earth kiss. And what's Adam supposed to do in this place? What's his task? Verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. Adam's the gardener caring for and maintaining that protected space. He's protecting that, that space. This is his royal vocation. This is, interestingly, the only other time this phrase is used in our Bibles, to, to work it and to keep it, is, is used of the Levites, who in the temple would work it and keep it. So Adam's task is to make Eden the place where God dwells, to worship his God, to walk with his God, to obey his God, to accurately represent his God in the way that he lives. And we're going to see one chapter later, he instantly messes it up, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. So here we see this, this heaven-touching earth. And what we see is Adam is called, created as the crown jewel, Adam and Eve, male and female, to bear God's image. He's the son of God, 
the servant king who's called to be a priest in the garden. Now, it doesn't just say stay in the garden, does it? What does he say in verse 28? God blessed them. Again, operating from a place of rest. He first blesses them. He doesn't say do all the work, then I'll bless you. I'm going to bless you, then you go work. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Make lots of babies. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all of the animals. So what we see here is Adam and Eve, as the, as the, as the image bearers of God, as his priests, were to extend the boundaries of Eden to make the rest of the world Edenic, Eden-like, right? To, to cultivate and maintain the entire world and fill the earth with image bearers of God, to make all of earth the place where God's rule is acknowledged, where God is restfully worshipped in, and where God is rightly related to. That's their job, to fill the earth with them and their offspring to reflect God's image in the way that they lived. But we know, right? We know, the, we know where the story goes. They do not rightly relate to God. They do not submit under his rulership and rule the way that he said to, and, and they do not restfully worship in him. It goes off the rails very quickly. But God has a rescue plan, right? And that Adam was not the ultimate son of God, the servant priest king. We know that that role is reserved for Jesus. And Jesus comes to this earth as the ultimate son of God. He's the ultimate image bearer. This is what Paul says in, in Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the only one who has embodied the very character and traits of God because he is God. You want to know what God looks like and how God lives? Look in the Gospels at the person of Jesus. He's the ultimate son of God. Remember when he comes out of the waters of baptism and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the only human that he could honestly say that about. Here's the one that I'm fully pleased and not just who he is as my image bearer, but in the way that he has lived that out consistently. He's the ultimate servant. Here he is God himself. But what does Matthew 20 say about him? Son of man didn't come to be served. He came to serve. The very supreme being of all came to serve. And then we see he's the ultimate priest, right? He, Hebrews 4, the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus, the only one who always has rightly worshipped the Father. And then finally, he's the ultimate king. And unlike us, he's not just God's royal children. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. On his robe, Revelation 19 says, and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our Savior. And we are on a mission made in the image of Jesus. We are sent like Adam and Eve. What, is, what does Peter call us? The kingdom of priests to go into the world and spread the worship of our glorious God. And we do so, we've been given a mission to go make disciples, to fill the world with the light and life that stems from the person of God himself. And to make, uh, to create the holy space where God and man meet. And that's no longer in a garden. That's no longer in a temple. The meeting place of God and men. Who, who's the temple now? We are. And that in Jesus, we become the meeting place of heaven and earth of God and man. So a couple questions and we'll be done. First of all, where do you find your worth? Where do you find your worth? The Bible tells us where our worth is ultimately found. It's found not in what we do. It's found in who we are. It's found in the fact that every single person sitting in this room today is created in the image of God. And yet we fail. And we struggle to believe this every day. Daughters of God, we struggle 
We struggle to believe that our worth is found elsewhere, and so we try to look at it and how much we weigh, and the complexion of our skin, style of our clothes, how clean or not clean our homes are, how well our kids are behaving or not behaving. And then we're bombarded every day with a, a social media comparison trap that says, look at how everybody else is doing it more worthwhile than you are. And we see this, this, the hidden messages there, sons of God, refining our worth and how much money we're bringing in, how well-maintained our home is, how successful we are at our job, how big our truck is. What do we find our value in? Second question is, where do we find our worth in others? God's word here on page one clearly says that every single person is made in the image of God, not just some, but all. And we know that, but how do we live that? This, this weekend, Jill and I went up on a train, uh, took the train down to Spencer Glacier, and we got on there. We had our tickets, okay? And right on the ticket, it says where you're supposed to sit. I'm a rule follower. So we get there, and there are some people who have the audacity to be sitting in our seats. So I said, excuse me, you're sitting in our seats. And they looked at us and effectively said, we don't care, this is our seat now. Now, Jill and I are people pleasers, so we just walked away, and we just, you know, very respectfully to their faces, so that's great. And then I sat down and stewed for the next hour. They're sitting in my spot. That's my spot. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, I did not see them as image bearers of God. I saw them as vessels of my wrath, right? I knew my end, my purposes, and it was, it was to harm them and not to prosper them, right? I knew what I wanted. And man, how often do we fail? There's somebody that the Lord could bring to your mind right now that you're not seeing as an image bearer of God. Someone that we're not dignifying and giving the same worth to because of who they are and who God has said that they are to be. So who in our heart? And, and I'll tell you what, for some of us, that person that we're not seeing, giving that worth to is ourselves. Every human made in the image of God. And then finally, how do we represent his character here on earth? How do we embody him? You and I are living statues that are called to represent as icons. When you click on us, hoo <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Ruin the moment. As you... We are icons representing the God that we serve. And are we embodying those characteristics? We can't do that on our own. But what is the fruit of the Spirit? Not the fruit of the just, and what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Are we going out into this world and showing them who our God is? Showing them who our Jesus is in us in the way that we embody not his physical characteristics, God is a spirit, but in his spiritual characteristics, in the way that we are loving our neighbor as ourself, in the unity that we have as a body. Brothers and sisters, people in this room differ on whether or not you should take a vaccine. That's okay. We differ on what's gonna, what's, what fall school should look like, and that's okay. We have to be able to show the world, embody to the world what the love of our God looks like in spite of our differences. And find unity in the diversity to bring order to a world of chaos, light to a world of darkness, and life to a dead world that desperately needs to be resurrected. So page one starts out pretty good, doesn't it?
kings and queens of God royally resting in his garden, Sabbath rest forever. But just wait until next week. There's a little snake that slithers into the protected space and everything goes south. But I want us to take heart because the unfolding promise of God, the, the image that's blurry and coming into clearer and clearer focus will bloom, will come to fruition, and the rescue of mankind is a sure promise that we can stand on. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you've kept your promise to us. We thank you that you've revealed your promise to us in the word. I pray as we embark on this journey that for each of us we'd be able to better understand the story, our story, the story of mankind and the story of this rescue mission that you sent Jesus on, that we may deeper understand, not just, hey, cool, we see how the Bible works together, but that we may, through this, know and love our God. Lord, would you bring us into right relationship with you, that we would trust you, obey you, worship you, love you, be an intimate fellowship that we can and be given in this relationship because we're created in your likeness. Lord, that we would faithfully represent your rule as we go out into this world as your image bearers and make disciples and embody Jesus in the way that we love each other and love our neighbor as ourselves. And Father, would we rest in Worship of who you are, the God in his temple, on his throne, who loves us, not because of our performance, but because of who we are and who you created us to be, and that we will operate out of that place of rest. Lord, would you free us from the bondage of anxiety, of fear, and of shame, and bring us into the place where Christ has created in us, the touch point of heaven and earth. May your name be lifted high by those who bear your likeness and image. It's in the name of Jesus that any of this is possible. And it's in his beautiful name that all God's people said, amen. amen.